Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Schulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 14, Born Under a Bad Sign. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing sexual assault. If that's not something you're in the headspace to listen to, you can feel free to skip this episode for now or entirely. That is up to you. Take care of yourself. That's what matters. And thank you for listening. So, Drew, I feel like I want to start this episode by saying that this is one of the episodes that I always skip whenever I'm rewatching. So I think that this was the like one of the first times that I really watched it attentively. And even then, there were parts that I skipped. I'll be honest, I understand. Do you want to recap it so that we can get it done? Yeah, like it's not a bad episode, but it's just not a great episode, if you know what I mean. Go ahead and count me down and I'll start a recap. All right, three, two, one. So apparently Sam's missing. Dean's on the hunt for Sam, eventually finds him in a crummy motel covered in blood. They start doing the classic like, I don't remember what happened. Let's retrace our steps and lead to stolen car knife, probably also stolen knife covered in blood Uh, house. House has been broken into guy in house also covered in blood. Knife probably came from him both physically and Physically, there's a really heartfelt conversation where Sam tries to convince Dean to kill him. Dean says no, finally. Sam goes, okay, night, night, and knocks him out with a gun and then goes after Joe, where it is very clear that he is very clearly possessed when he makes some very inappropriate advances on Joe while possessed and tries to kill her, only to have Dean show up and try to save the day. Dean then gets shot but survives. Joe saves him. And then they go after him where he's gone after Bobby and Bobby's like, I'm not an idiot. I put holy water in the beer, which is he must do all the time. And thank you, because what a smart move. If I were Hunter, I'd be doing it, too. Turns out this is Meg trying to get revenge and they kick her out of his body by ruining the mark she put on him to bind himself herself to him. Then they have a not so emotional end of episode driving away where Dean makes a bad joke about Sam having a woman inside of him. Four seconds left. That was a lot more than I thought it was going to take. I think it's because there's a lot of things that actually happen in this episode. There's a lot going on. Is there anything for the long game to mention here? There's just a couple of things. When Meg, and at that point we don't know that it's Meg, right? But when Sam tells Joe Bill was all clawed up holding his insides in his hands, he was gargling and praying to see you and Ellen one more time. This is actually something Something that we do have to remember. Mm, I'm looking forward to that. Anything else? When the demon says to Dean, hell is a prison of bone and flesh and blood and fear. Again, like that's something that, you know, talking to Dean about hell is always a bit of foreshadowing. So that's something to keep in mind. I'm intrigued. I didn't really go into this episode. I, I mean, I think coming out of this episode, I really felt like ugh, filler. Like we didn't really learn anything. None of the emotional beats really felt important so i'm glad to know there's some things from this episode that will hold some value later on shall we move into story time so where exactly in the story shall we begin because there's a lot of nothing despite my recap again this is one of those episodes that really 
is heavily plot-driven, and I'm thinking of other episodes that we've seen this season, and we'll talk about that in critical time just a bit, but let's start when Sam and Dean are looking at the VW Beetle, and they find the blood and the bloody knife, and Sam is freaking out. He clearly thinks that he's the one who used the knife, even though he doesn't really say it. He's very agitated. He wipes the knife to get fingerprints off. Dean, on the other hand, seems, seems seems, being the operative word, I think, very collected. His attitude actually reminded me of Simon Said and how Sam was projecting his fears onto Andy. And Dean was like, meh, doesn't seem like a killer to me. I think the only major difference here is that this again is another one in the books of Dean was clearly right. This was not Sam. Like, I know Sam even tries to be like, oh, I was there for it. Like physically, like brood, brood, brood. But no, you were possessed buddy, like this was 100% a pass on your part. Sorry, Mr. Broody McBroody Pants. Uh, But again, this is another case of, I know we always joke, I'm Sam, I'm right, but Dean seems to be winning this uh, I'm right game right now. Okay, so we're going to put a pin in that because I have some thoughts for that a little bit later. Do you think that there was some level of Dean that was kind of freaking out, but just not showing it to Sam? For sure. I feel like Dean freaking out, the only times I can really see it are little moments of panic and the times he does call uh, John, at least tries to call John. But generally, Dean really puts on that strong face, that very stoic, like everything's fine for Sam more than for himself, I feel. So even if this was fake, it was convincing. It truly was convincing. And and I agree that if he was freaking out a little bit, it was for the benefit of Sam that he kept his composure. And it, 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 I think it helped because, you know, Sam didn't spin out of control when he could have. Now, of course, we know that he was possessed, find out later, but like at that moment, we're not supposed to know, right? So he's sparing his feelings and making sure that he stays like in as stable a mindset as possible. Yeah, truly, this is another case of just the Dean, again, a case of Dean being right, but it's also a case of Dean having to play the parent role to Sam because if Dean really were freaked out and panicked and this makes no sense, we have to like, you know, like I'm, I'm surprised something like Dean saying wipe the knife down wasn't a line that came from him and was a reaction of Sam. I just think it's because at that point he still thinks that it's not Sam and or Sam's body. So that's why wiping down the knife doesn't really come naturally to him or doesn't come right away to him. So actually, you mentioned it a little bit. Like when you watched the footage of Sam killing the hunter, like what went through your mind? Like what was most shocking to you about it? It's tough to say. I think for me, the first part was the fact that it was such low quality footage just kind of added to that level of like, yes, on screen it's Sam, but we're getting this very blurry, hard to see image. It kind of leaves you feeling like, is it actually Sam? Like, yeah, yeah, I get it's him on the camera. And like, yeah, we're not getting any of the telltale signs of like a shapeshifter, but like, is it Sam? Like it just, it's it's not like 100%, but it's like 99%. So I feel like there's even a part where we're supposed to feel like it maybe isn't. I agree with you. And it's funny because I hadn't thought about that at all because to me it was more like about feelings than about evidence so like for me what was most shocking to me is like the dichotomy between the gentleness and the thoughtfulness of the Sam that we've come to know in this show and like the brutality and the recklessness of the Sam on the security footage I was like that's not Sam so for completely different reasons but I was like that's Sam but that's not Sam again for me like just from a story perspective if you imagine let's assume we're in the headspace that we are meant to be at the moment of watching this, where we still have to debate, is this Sam? What could be causing this? 
like the first things I looked for, was there anything in the footage that seemed off? Like, and I mean, right away, Sam calls it out. There's no glint to the eyes. There's no distortion. So it's not like a demon or it's not like a, a shapeshifter. Like he basically calls out what we're all thinking. But also there's the other side of it, too, where Sam in the video purposely pulls this guy into view of the camera. Like he clearly has him pinned to the ground. We then see him move this man closer to be in frame, then makes the kill and then looks in the camera like this was staged. And I think that even more makes it unsettling because there's a level of like whoever or whatever's doing this wanted to be caught. No, like it clearly wanted Sam to get in trouble for whatever it did. I think even more it wanted Dean to see it. Oh, well, yes. And that definitely makes sense with what happens later. This is Meg getting revenge. This is Meg wanting Dean to kill Sam. All right. So you talked a little bit about Dean being right. And I kind of want to bring that up as a, a larger theme and hold on to your seat. I am going to say that I was wrong. <gasps> Explain yourself. It's being recorded and like hundreds of people will hear it. So, yes. <laughs> I need to know what you mean. Details. So we've talked a lot about Dean's lack of faith on this podcast. And this is something that I've pushed very strongly. We all agreed with it. We all agreed on it. But I was definitely pushing it because that's how I saw it. But. As I'm rewatching these seasons like more attentively, I have to say that I'm really not sure if it's accurate to say that he has no faith. We've basically seen him again and again believe things with very little physical proof or evidence. And I'm thinking about like the unholy ground in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. I'm thinking about Andy not being a killer in Simon Said. I'm thinking about Dwayne being quote unquote evil in Croatoan. Like all of those things. And there's probably more too that I'm not thinking about right now. They're kind of like pushing me to say that Dean actually has like an enormous amount of faith. Like, he has faith in himself and his hunting skills and his instincts. Whereas Sam, like, what does Sam really believe in? He doesn't have faith in John, which, I mean, who can blame him? So that's, that's okay. But, like, he also doesn't have faith in Dean because he doesn't believe him when he uses his instinct correctly. Correctly, right? And, like, now, because of what he's dealing with, he doesn't even believe in himself since, since he thinks that he's evil. I think that Sam is the one with no faith right now. Dean has faith in a lot of things, but there are things that he can... I think faith is the wrong word. I think that's the problem. Dean doesn't have faith in a lot of things because... To, and again, this is, I think, a personal opinion thing. To me, faith is believing in something without necessarily having evidence. Whereas Dean has a, you know, Dean believes in himself and his abilities because he can physically look back at the times what he's done and go, I'm good at this. Whereas Sam, though it would appear doesn't have faith in anything specifically, he does truly believe without evidence other than just hearsay that he is destined for something. Whether this actually is evil or just a destiny he can't escape. You know, he's trying to, as we've seen, like, be the best he can be to outdo his, you know, karmic destiny. But ultimately, he believes this destiny is the ultimate outcome. And it's what he is heading down a path towards, which is why he is 
even outside of this episode, very paramount that Dean does keep the promise of killing him if ever he does fully turn. Sam has faith in something we cannot see or only believe, and that is his destiny, whereas Dean doesn't hold faith in anything he can't believe, but through evidence and his own observations believes in many things. I get that, but I also feel like in order to to know that something's off, yes, you're relying on past experiences where you were right, but like there is a certain amount of faith. Like, especially think back to like children shouldn't play with dead things. When I asked you like, did you believe Sam or did you believe Dean? Because at the time for me, like I sort of believed Sam more than Dean because I was like, there's no evidence of what you're saying, Dean. And like, same thing for Andy. At first I was like, no, I think Sam is right. Same thing for Dwayne. I was like, don't kill him, Dean. Sam is right. Dean believes in things or like he, he uses, he believes in his ability to distinguish what's, what's right and wrong, even when there isn't that much proof, which is our definition of faith, right? It's, it's a, a belief that, that starts from within, which is, I think, how we had uh, defined it in faith, right? It's something that doesn't rely on like externality. It really originates from within. And I think that if we use that definition, which we've been using as an operative uh, operating definition, we, we sort of have to reevaluate the way that we think of faith and the boys. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a level of like, I still feel in all those scenarios, there's still some level of like prior experience that helps kind of nudge Dean in a direction. But ultimately, it's his belief in himself, his abilities and those around him that ultimately make the decision. I think so. But anyway, I guess this is something that we can like come back to and see. Because again, in this one, like he had faith in Sam when really all the signs pointed against him. The physical proof, the, the, the physical evidence was against Sam. And Dean was like, nope, I don't believe that. I believe in you. If we also look at the other side of that argument is, you know, clearly he believed it was a demon or something controlling Sam. Because he has the evidence of Sam the rest of his life. He knows Sam could never do these things. He's he's 100% confident that this is not Sam because he's known Sam his entire life. Sure, he also has the evidence of his dad telling him that eventually he might have to kill him. And he also has the evidence of like the weird, you know, yellow-eyed children who turn evil for no reason. And yet he's choosing to believe one thing over the other. Meaning that he puts more faith in Sam. Let's let that marinate for a little while. How about that? I did not admit that I was wrong just for you to say, no, you were actually right. (laughs) So in the argument of is Mary wrong, you have to be right. (laughs) Yes. Listeners, this is what I put up with every week. (laughs) (laughs) You're used to it. And you know what? I have faith in Mary. I know her. She's right. (laughs) I think this is just one of those things that like I had a bit of a flash during this episode because, again, I was a little distracted when I was watching it. There was a lot going on last week. And so it just felt like, oh, this is a weird thing that's happening. So anyway, 
there you go. Now, do you want to talk about the whole Joe situation? Like, is there anything that you want to touch on in there at all? The the start of it with the whole, again, Meg, Sam, uh, talking to Joe the way he, he, she was in the way she still holds a torch for Dean, as they put it. Up until that point, there's always sort of this level of like, is it Sam or is it a possession? Like, what's going on? And then from like that moment on, it's like, yeah, clearly this isn't Sam. This is like messed up and dark. And then it just gets gross a little bit. T- tell me more about that. I don't know, it's, just, it's very uncomfortable. And I think, again, knowing that specifically it's Meg doing this, I think it's just it's done in universe for the fact that she knows how much this will like upset Joe more than anything else. Like this being put in a position that is so unsafe by someone you kind of consider a safe person to be around. Some real rapey vibes. Let's put it like right on the table. Those are some real rapey ass vibes and it is not cool. Honestly, like this is truly the reason why I hate this episode. Um, I don't watch it because it it's just awful that part of it like you said i we know by this point that sam is in sam so we can't hold sam accountable for that because it's not him doing it we still don't quite know what's going on but we know that something's not right and when he tells her you know like i care about you a lot and grabs her hand like i just i recoil every single time you can just like feel the danger of that situation and you just know that nothing good can come out of it and 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 i think that that's also something that i kind of like dislike from this episode as well like it's never quite clear if there was like physical assault or not you know like sexual assault or not like it's heavily implied but it's never shown obviously because this is a CW, but like, so I just kind of want to talk about that because again, this is a show that's like on a quote unquote family network. And so they have to rely on coding in order to talk about sexual assault of women. They basically make fun of sexual assault on men, as we've seen in previous episodes, but on women, it's a more delicate subject So, and I'm saying this with huge air quotes, obviously, it's not clear to me whether or not there was assault. So I, and that makes me uncomfortable because you never really know. Now, there's one last thing that I wanted to mention in story time, because again, it's something that I can't quite figure out. And I think that maybe both are true. But like when Joe is asking Dean if demons ever tell the truth, at first I thought it was because she wanted to know if the story about her dad was true. But then as she went on and the way that she reacted when Dean gave her his reply, the more I think it was about finding out if what the demon had said that Dean feels about her is true or not. (laughs) It's just, I feel so much for her. Like she is so, you can tell that she is like head over heels for Dean, right? Like she really, really likes him. And he's just, I don't know. I, I, I think he really cares about her and loves her, but just not in the way that she would like him to. Yeah, and I think even looking back to when they first met and there's like that, like, we discussed it so much then, but that moment of like Dean being like, I don't have to play the chauvinistic pig card in front of you. I don't have to be the guy who hits on you and makes, you know, innuendos. And I feel like that's the first time he's had a female counterpart where he's been able to do that. That it's almost like imprinted on her this like, role of like an equal a friend 
someone to take care of someone to be there for and has inadvertently cut off his ability to see her as more than a friend. I think Joe learning that really it's it's hard to find out when you really like somebody and then have it just be like, I don't like you that way. Like, I like you, but we're never going to have that. That's I mean, I know we joke about the friend zone and stuff, but it's it's a tough place to be. I've I've been there. I'll be very upfront and say it. I've been friend zoned and it's tough. And your options are either. Unfortunately, you can't keep the relationship up because, you know, your feelings for them will never stop. And it's not fair to you or them to keep being that way. Or you do find a way to get through it and you do reconcile it and you do stay friends. Both are very tough and both take a lot of effort and a lot of communication, which not Dean strong suit. Yeah, so there you go. Just I figured that I would share this little relatable moment of Joe because, oh, Joe, love Joe. Shall we move on to critical time? Yeah, I was going to say with that, there isn't much more story to talk about. Uh, We can jump into critical time. Who were our writer and director combo for this episode? I'm very, very curious to know. The culprits are Catherine Humphreys, who wrote Dead Man's Blood with John Sheban. And she also wrote The Usual Suspect. So again, that was another episode that was really heavily plot-driven. Clearly, there's a theme that's emerging from her episodes. And the director was J. Miller Tobin. This was his supernatural directorial debut. But we will see more of his work through to season five. So... Catherine Humphreys. I mean, I feel bad because like Dead Man's Blood is a good episode. I know it was written with John Sheban, as you said, but it's a really good episode. So I would just posit that like John Sheban is an excellent writer in general. And like he's given us some of the best supernatural episodes, the like the first and second season. This episode, and I feel like Usual Suspects also suffers from it, is it's just it's a lot of writing to very clearly explain and push. It's a very like tell don't show type writing i mean the example i pulled out here that just seemed really weird to me was the fact they find a receipt for the gas station but sam stole the booze and the cigarettes if you're pulling up at a gas station and your plan is to go into the gas station you would pay for the gas at the counter at the same time so you're telling me either one and realize that self-serve gas stations across america were not commonplace like at this point in time that he went in paid for gas, then went and picked up the booze, started drinking it, stole the smokes and left. Like, what? <laughs> and then broke <laughs> broke the the 40 bottle like on the counter and threatened the guy for the for the menthols, right? Like <laughs> so many times in the episode it was just Sam having like, oh wait, over there. Like we already have this clearly it's possession, Sam, so Meg knows what they what she did. And it's just leading Dean on this, you know, trail just to make, you know, make Dean see what she made Sam do. You could have just had a like, what do you remember? Like, I remember, you know, a gas station. Okay, well, so the only gas station in town is this way. Like, you could have worked that out so much better without needing to write this weird scenario. And on that same point, anti-possession charms. If there are anti-possession charms that are readily available enough that Bobby could just give two of them to the boys. That tells me they're not super uncommon, in which case shouldn't every hunter have one from the day they are born to the rest of their lives, like tattooed to them. Oh, okay. So this is like one of those cases where like, I I call it 
you know when like authors or like in this case showrunners are like introducing lore as they go so then like it doesn't quite explain like the rest of it keep in mind that at this point demons are super rare for hunters so i think the way to explain it like in world is to say that like oh well you know there actually aren't that many demons like there's a lot of lore about them so we do know about anti-possession charms but they never run into demons so they don't actually need them That's the in-world way of explaining it. (laughs) The real-world way of explaining it is the fact that, like, they just don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, this to me is very much the, like, you wrote this episode and then someone in the room was like, um, well, how do they never get possessed before? I don't know. Well, what if they get possessed again? Uh, they find charms that make possession not a thing anymore? Okay, that's good enough for us. Actually, something to remember is that is the link... The link symbol, right, that Meg puts, uh, like, carves into Sam's skin. No demon ever does that again. If there is a way for demons to block themselves from being exorcised, shouldn't every demon know this and be taught it from the moment they are, I guess, spawned? Like, day one of demon schools, here to not get exorcised. Again, like, the in-world response could be, like, Meg learned new things, so, like, it may not be common knowledge. The real-word response, like, my critical response to this would be, like, this was not a useful piece of information for later, so they dropped the lore. There are things from this episode that stay, like, the anti-possession charms, like, that stays in in a big way, and we'll see, actually, like, how permanent the boys make that anti-possession charm tell me they got tattoos essentially oh so down you know there's another instance of this that really kind of bugged me so like when meg slash sam shoots dean in the shoulder and then he falls in the water and then all of a sudden you don't see him anymore and then he like reappears unconscious like on a board somewhere i'm like if he was unconscious he would have drowned and like if he was able to get himself onto safety he wouldn't be coughing up water afterwards like this is just completely nonsensical definitely some issues with this episode (laughs) also not counting like the whole you know did it happen did it not happen uh sexual possible sexual assault on joe because like there is no way to spin this that is possible so like I understand that certain pieces of media need to have sexual assault happening. Either it's to tell somebody's story. I feel like when you do that, you need to look at it from the survivor's perspective and you need to truly do it in order to help other survivors out there, right? So that's kind of my take on it. And if you're not doing that, then it's gratuitous. You're just doing it to do it and there's absolutely no reason for it. And here... If we're layering all of this, this is somebody that she loves, that she trusts, somebody who like hasn't really showed interest in sex at all in in the previous seasons that we've known him. And they're also like he's also possessed by a female demon. So like, is it like what is happening here? Like no matter how you look at it, it's just like bad feelings all around, frankly. Shall we go listen to our voicemail, my dear? Yes. This week, we have a voicemail from Cass. Let's listen to their message. Um, I was listening to y'all's Everybody Loves a Clown episode, and you talked about Dean's belief in his own lack of intelligence, and I had a couple thoughts I wanted to contribute. Um, in a book I was recently reading, it comes up that if a person, more relevantly in this case a child, believes that 
intelligence is a fixed trait that they'll become invested in appearing smart, and as a consequence, they'll avoid tasks in which their performance would suggest anything but that. The most applicable aspect of this is that when a person views intelligence as a fixed trait, for example, labeling themselves as unintelligent, dumb, lazy, or something of that nature, they have a much harder time ever moving out of that idea. I'm of the belief that Dean likely believes it to be a fixed trait that he holds, whether or not he actually has consciously thought about the topic. And I mean, a large part of him not believing himself to be smart is likely due to what y'all mentioned in the episode, which is that he's never been given the opportunity to display, in an academic setting anyways, that he's intelligent. But I'm also of the belief and perception that because he has an outlook on intelligence as an immovable and unchangeable trait, that it continues to reinforce this idea that he is dumb. I mean, I'm of the opinion that Dean is really fucking smart, which I know is an opinion many hold, but I wonder how much he agrees with that perception. Um, I think this idea of fixed intelligence and labeling yourself as stupid becomes this kind of like vicious cycle because he believes he's dumb and his mind the trait is fixed, he holds on to that label. I think for Dean specifically, knowing that people see him as dumb, he become capable or he became capable at responding to that perception and subsequently internalized that label. He holds on to it and then feed it feeds into this idea that he's already dumb, so why should he even try at school? One could make the point that he may not even have the time and energy to try anyways, but for the sake of discussion, we will simply ignore that. And it becomes this endless, endless thing of, I'm dumb, so why should I try at school? Thus, he never gives himself the opportunity to learn and grow his intelligence, so to speak. Um, if it wasn't already obvious, I'm of the opinion that intelligence is malleable and that you have the ability to grow your intellect in whatever way interests you. Um, he never gives himself the chance to learn, likely because no one around him is giving him the chance to do so. I just want to give him a hug so badly and talk to him about these things. Because he's so obviously a brilliant man, but he's just convinced himself that he's not. And it's become this fixed trait that he holds to his identity. And it's like, please, no, you aren't. <laughs> you just haven't been given the opportunity to learn and try at school. So how would you know if you thrive in an academic setting? And like that aside, academic intelligence, for some godforsaken reason, has become the epitome of intelligence when there are so many ways to be intelligent. But the moment a person doesn't thrive in an academic setting, whether it's because they've never been given a chance or because they need a different type of learning style or accommodations to learn in a school setting, cough, cough, ADHD, Dean, cough, cough, all of a sudden they're labeled as dumb. It irks me so much because that just sticks so many people into a category that no one truly fits into because, in, in my opinion, no one is unintelligent in every possible manner, but because we as a general society expect academic intelligence because it's the most relevant for joining the general workforce and being productive, if you aren't super intelligent in that area, well, you must be dumb and lazy and you're just not trying hard enough. Overall, I'd like to throw myself into the ocean, because it's one of the most limiting things that we've placed upon children that isn't even a label that they can be rid of when they're adults. Instead, they're forced to internalize a label that doesn't truly fit anyone, just because no one in their life took the time to help them learn in a manner effective for them. And this is like a general rant at the state of like our society, in Western society anyways, but I do think that it applies to Dean. <laughs> so I hope that this was insightful or enjoyable for um, any of y'all, and hopefully is informing more discussions. Also, just want to add a quick addendum. Absolutely love y'all's podcast. Thank you so much for making it. I have so many thoughts on Supernatural, and 
none of my friends want to hear them, so being able to listen to y'all's podcast and see other interpretations of Supernatural is just so lovely, because I will probably never leave this show um, to the detriment of my health. Thank you, first of all, for the lovely message at the end and this entire conversation piece, because it is something as a college dropout myself, I so feel I went through a lot of difficulty in school, uh, things that looking back may have been errors in the school system or just the way that my intelligence wasn't recognized or being put into the wrong classes because of clerical errors. I can agree wholeheartedly with both the instance of the academic intelligence should not be the metric by which everyone is judged going into modern society. And also that your intelligence is not directly tied to what you learn in a book or what the school system says. This is something I have felt for a long time and have often argued, especially being, as I said, a college dropout who I feel myself to be quite intelligent, even though I didn't believe that of myself while I was in school. And I think leaving school fixed that for me more than anything else. You know, I look at my career as a graphic design student. I look at my career as a podcaster here. I look at my personal career in the IT world. Nothing that school gave me. Like 100% non-school learning has gotten me where I am today. And I know I say this as I am sitting next, sitting next to virtually my co-host who will have many things to say, who is um, still in school <laughs> and will soon have a PhD and will make me look even more foolish than I already am. But I think that goes to show that there are people who do thrive in a school setting. There are people who have academic intelligence and can benefit from it and can grow and can make the world a better place. So the school system, while flawed with the right people, can produce great outcomes. My, my very lovely co-host being a great example of these. But at the same time, I also agree that, you know, not everyone learns the same pace. Like you called out people with ADHD that really hinders the way you learn and absorb information and the way you are have to be taught. And the fact that our systems don't really accommodate that they try to and bless them for at least trying, but they don't. Um, ultimately, I agree completely. And when I look at society and the way it is, I definitely agree with the sentiment of being thrown into the ocean. I'll jump in right after you. Thank you so, so much for your lovely message. I mean, I definitely have some thoughts. I'll start with some academic thoughts and then I'll, I'll go to like a personal anecdote. First off, like all of the, like the theory that you mentioned about labels and about internalizing labels, like that's all very sound. Like I've actually with our research team, we wrote a paper about how labels can impact your ability to participate in a team. So 100%, you are given a label, you will eventually internalize it for good or bad. Because I know that I get mad about labels often on this show, but there are instances where labels are good. And that those instances are when it brings you into an in-group. So like you are a Habs fan, you are a Bruins fan, you are, I don't know, I don't know football guys, I'm really sorry, those are all hockey teams, <laughs> but like, you are a sports person, you are, you, you know, all of those things make you part of a group and it makes you special, right? It makes you part of the in-group. Those are quote unquote good labels, but then there are the labels like you're dumb, you, you are 
a woman in a boardroom full of men. You are a black person in a room full of white people. Like those are all labels that are difficult to carry because they mean that you are the person who is out of the in-group. Um, so for Dean, you can imagine that he had a million other things going on in his mind when he was in school. He was worried about his dad. He missed his mom. He had to take care of his, I was going to say his son, but he had to take care of his little brother. <laughs> he had to, I mean, who, who am I kidding? And then he also had to worry about like making sure that they had food and enough money. And they had like, he had to literally protect his little brother with a shotgun in a motel room. Like, how is a child supposed to learn when they're thinking about all those things, probably while on an empty stomach? There is just no way. So of course the teachers would have labeled him a certain way and he would have internalized that, you know? It's, it's just inevitable. Like this boy was never given a chance, period, to think that he was intelligent in a way that we have been taught that intelligence means anything. And so if I can bring in just like a tiny personal experience there, like because I wasn't always in school, like it actually took me a really long time to finish my bachelor's because I was experiencing really bad uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms, which it turns out are really quite similar to ADHD. So I had a lot of trouble finishing my bachelor's. I eventually did. In, a, in one of the times that I was taking like a stretch of time off, a boyfriend that I had was like, oh, well, you know, you used to be smart, but you're not in school anymore. And I remember thinking like, what the fuck does that have to do with my intelligence? And now, obviously, now I realize that this had more to do with him than it had to do with me. That person was also a college dropout. And so I think that, like I said, this was about him, not about me. So it goes to show what people value as intelligence and what people think intelligence truly is, which, as you've made so clear in your voicemail, and is absolutely true, there's not just one form of intelligence. There's a lot of them. And um, not all of them are valued the same way in our society, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Can you just picture Dean sitting in like history class learning about like the Civil War as he's like, I just killed a ghost yesterday. Let's remember that Dean went on his first solo hunt at 18 years old. He would have been on other hunts with his dad before, like you said, right? You've listed all these amazing reasons why he would be distracted. But also when you get to a point in your life that you see like the bigger picture too early and in this the bigger picture is that demons ghosts monsters they're all real and they're out there and i've had to deal with them firsthand it really makes you know johnny had five apples and susie took three doesn't matter susie might be possessed let me get the salt yeah there you go again this comes back to john uh, john shall we go to the crossroads so I'm going to be very transparent. I didn't really prepare a crossroads for this one. I kind of know where I want to go with it because I want to be optimistic. I want to be positive in this case. And I think I want to change this episode for the better. I'd say cut half the episode. Just just like the first half. Just cut it. Just start with Sam showing up to the bar and finding Joe and maybe like elongate that scene a bit with less cuts and more time on them. And then eventually Dean showing up and the reveal of Dean's been looking for Sam for the last week or two. 
so like literally my deal is get rid of half the episode to let us better explore these characters, the plot, and not have to shoehorn everything in. You're not stealing my crossroads because it's not what's going on, but like we are clearly on the same page. Clearly. I was also going to request like less stuff happening, right? We don't need Dean falling down in the water. <laughs> like even the chase of looking for what Sam went through, like killing the hunter, like it's just not useful to the episode. But I would have loved a longer moment with Joe and Dean. More time to play in the space would have been useful. Yeah. This to me feels like, and as someone who's tried writing before and had to look at his own work, it feels like you started with one idea and then really found your footing, but refused to cut out the early draft. This is exactly what they mean when they say, like, kill your darlings, right? Like, remove the parts that you are so attached to, keep to what helps the story. And I'm not too sure that that was done. Actually, I know that that was not done. I would say it's a solid 40% of the runtime of this episode is dedicated to everything pre-Joe. Like, it, it basically sets up the scenario of, like, what is the mystery? That entirety could have been done with just a reveal against Joe where suddenly Sam turns hostile to Joe and we're like, whoa, what the hell's going on? Dean shows up, something's going on, and then whatever Sam gets away and ends up at Bobby's, like... And then you have Joe and Dean discuss it and reveal everything. And suddenly you've taken that, you know, 20 something minutes of runtime and made it into a like 15 minute good action scene. I would have loved to see a scene with Bobby, Dean and Joe and Bobby making a comment to Dean about how Joe really likes him and to see how Dean reacts to that. That's what I would have liked to see. I don't really care about the beetle and the blood and the hunter and everything else. Like I wanted more Joe and I wanted more Bobby. And we didn't get either of those things. Exactly. Like, as soon as we saw Bobby in this episode, I was like, yes. Like, that's the redeeming point it had when I was watching it. Like, just <laughs> Bobby. Bobby! And I also love, I also just love Bobby. Like, that he, like, holy waters the beer. <laughs> yeah. Which actually, I just need to share it now because I need to get it off my chest. I thought Joe was going to do that. Yeah, eh? that's true. And then you actively have Sam never drink the beer. So as soon as they got to Bobby's and they handed him a beer again, I was like, well, he's not going to drink. And he drinks it. I'm like, the hell? You were handed a beer a minute ago the last hundred you tried to kill and you ignored it. And here you're like, "Mm, beer. God, uh, just again, more of the. (laughs) Yes, this episode was really disjointed, Drew. Like there's there's nothing to say about it. Like, (laughs) no, but that's that's the annoying thing. There's. Okay, here, I'm going to be very, very blunt, and I, I pray that as time goes on, we get to see more of Catherine's writing, and maybe we see her correct this behavior. But I feel like there was so much potential in this episode as a plot. You know, bring back, bringing back Meg, making Sam the villain for an episode, making us doubt him, having to play the whole, you know, Dean, you have to kill Sam card, you know, you could have introduced Bobby and Joe together for the first time would have been a fun interaction to have. And then ultimately, you know, lead to them figuring out the anti-possession charms and like, you know, let's see if we can do this. Like I see you've, you know, you've perfected the demon trap on your roof. How'd you do this? I've been working with demon stuff for weeks and months now. And I actually have something for the three of you. Like this could have been a great episode. All the pieces were there. 
but it's like someone dumped out two puzzles in the same box and then went like, oh, I'll just build them both at the same time and make one big puzzle. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> I love that visual, actually. I think it works really well for this episode. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Cass for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to grow our community and we love hearing from you. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fan who aren't ready to let for fan for fan for the one fan who's not ready to let go. Nobody else. Just for one fan.